it really is about command and control. Take the Industrial Revolution. It was about producing widgets, right? Mm -hmm. And every widget has to come out exactly the same every time. And I'm sorry, but that doesn't work in the knowledge economy. You're listening to the Visionary CEO Podcast, a series for entrepreneurs who want to escape the day-to-day grind while scaling their business to seven figures and beyond. And now, your hosts, Brian Dick and Jill Giovanazzo. Welcome back. It's another episode of the Visionary CEO Podcast. Jill Giovanazzo's in the house. Hello, everyone. How are you all? And of course, I'm Brianne Dick, where we're your co-hosts. And I think, from my perspective, this might be one of the most timely episodes that we've (laughs) recorded, Jill, because today we're going to be talking about something that is literally going on inside our business as we speak. Oh, hush you. <laughs> well, no, it's it's a good thing, right? It's, no, it is a good thing. It right? is a good thing. Our, our business is growing. We're, we're getting more clients. We're building our team. And along with that means that we, as I said, have new team members and we have to train them and we have to onboard them. And I think this is such an interesting topic to be talking about when you're right in the thick of it, because... There's this tension that exists between I want to be able to invest time into my team member to be able to help them do a good job. And the reason I hired them is because I got other stuff to worry about and I need their support. And that's something that there's no getting around it. You have to deal with it. And so today we're going to talk about how to approach that in a way that's meaningful. And in doing so, we got another myth to bust. This is a myth I actually see quite regularly. And quite honestly, even when sometimes I have problems with myself, I'll be fully honest, because there there are challenges to this for many different reasons. We'll talk about some of those as we go through the episode. But the myth itself is about the idea that training your team requires more effort than just doing the task itself yourself. Yeah. How many times, I know you can't, we can't see you if you raise your hand, but if, and if you're driving, please don't raise your hand. But if you're, you know, in a, if you're in a location where you can safely do so, raise your hand if you've ever had this thought of why do I have to explain to someone else how to do this? It'd be so much better and so much faster to do it myself. And I think what's interesting, uh, Jill's raising her hand, you can't see it. (laughs) But I think what's interesting about this myth is that we all cognitively and logically know that yes, it might take more time, but we're saving time in the long run. But that isn't enough, right? Just that that logical understanding isn't enough to break us free of this myth. And I think that comes from a misattribution of where this belief is actually coming from. It's not about, will it take more time for me to train them or to do it myself? At the end of the day, I think what's underneath it in my experience is, will it actually be worth it for me to train someone else? Will they be able to do it the way I want? Will I still have to step in and do it? And those kind of fears. Yeah, it's a lot of it comes back to control. A lot of it comes back to this idea of I built everything. And so I'm the only one that really knows how to do it all. A lot of it comes back to the idea of not only am I the only one that can do it all, it's like I'm the only one that has the experience mm-hmm. and no one else has the experience I do. So how can other people do it? Because I, they don't have my experience. And right? the way I've heard this said from folks is 
this idea that even when I've got someone who's fully trained, even if I get them fully trained and it, there's documentation, there's videos, there's checklists, there's still so much prep work involved. Even after months of working together, I still have to spend upwards of one or two hours a day prepping for them to do their job. And so eventually, yeah, it feels like your time is just better spent doing the work because you could just do their job at the same time. So it's okay. I get this idea that if I train someone, they'll be able to take it over and eventually save myself more time. And yet, a lot of times, it seems like that day never comes. The day when they're saving you time never actually comes. Well, because you just keep repeating the exact same thought process over and over, right? That's that whole idea of, it's the opposite of the phrase short-term gain, long-term. Short-term pain item. for long-term gain. That's the one, yeah. right? It's, it's this idea that we like this short-term pain that we're constantly being presented with. It's not worth it to go through that pain, right? Mm -hmm. It's not worth it to overcome that aspect. And so rather than overcoming it, mm -hmm. we just keep circling back to it. It's like, oh, I'll mm -hmm. deal with it later. And we keep pushing it off. Yeah. But what I think is so interesting, and as I said, I think there's a misattribution that's happening inside of this myth. The, the belief is that, you know, it'll just take more time. I should just do it myself. But what I actually find more often than not is underneath all of this is a belief that I built this business. Therefore, my team must deliver client results in the same way that I would. They have to do it exactly the way I've been doing it with exactly the same outcomes. And so I don't have time to train someone to be me. And in fact, the underlying belief of this is that it's impossible to do that. I can't clone myself, so why should I even bother? You all can't see me, but I've got this little grin on my face as she's going through and talking about this because this is something, again, right? It's something we've gone through too. Mm -hmm. Right. This is one of those pieces. I don't know how many times one or the other of us have come together to showcase something that we've done to help support the other person. And we're kind of like, whoa, wait a second. That's not what I would have done. Yeah. It can't go that way. But isn't this just it's so funny because I was listening to uh, an audio recording of Michael A. Singer. He's the author of the book, The Untethered Soul and The Surrender Experiment and, and a number of other works. And he made the comment that this is very normal for us to do, right? For us to you know, say, well, that's not the way I would have done it and to have a problem with it. But isn't that why we build a team? And isn't that the value of having diverse voices and different points of view? Aren't we bringing people onto our teams because they do things differently than we do? I mean, that's the whole point is to have one plus one equals three. And yet we get caught in this loop of, oh, but they have to do it the way I do it. That's exactly it, right? It's this, this tension. I think a lot of it honestly has to come back to control. Mm -hmm. comes back to ownership, right? I've talked a lot before to various people, clients, and I think I even talked about it in season one of the podcast where I talked about how your business is like your baby, mm -hmm. right? You put a lot of effort in, you put a lot of pieces carrying this business along and bringing it across the, the lines that you have. And now all of a sudden we're asking you to give up control over it and, and let people, you know, have their say, as, oh, no, wait a second. It's not ready yet. I'm not ready. Yeah. And that, I think, is in many cases, the bigger truth is I'm not ready. 
And the other thing that I see so often is that we don't have this modeled well for us. And I was talking with Joe Taylor Jr., who is a past client, the producer of our podcast, and just a really great friend of the business. And he was telling me a little bit about his experience, you know, and how he came to wrestle with all of this. And, and it was exactly what we're just saying. He didn't have good models for what this could even look like. I spent five years working in my family business while I was in high school and in college. And after that, I went right from college into a broadcasting organization that was part of a much larger institution. And so both of those experiences were of very rigid structures, even though one was very small and one was very large. In both those situations, I learned to manage by watching the folks who I worked for. And while I'm proud of the work we did at that point, I didn't know that my bosses at the time, even the ones I was related to, weren't giving me the best examples of leadership. So by the time 10 years into my career that I launched my first startup, I set the same expectations for my team that my bosses had set for me. Because I felt like I'd built the business myself, I expected every member of my team to deliver every piece of output exactly the way that I had been doing it which meant that I was inspecting every deliverable before it went to a client. And it meant that if my team wanted to try to do something in a way that I wasn't familiar with, I'd just veto it. So what happened was, even though I had built a strong reputation within my niche, I couldn't scale the company quickly enough to meet the demands of our customers. So they moved on and it wrecked a few personal relationships along the way. And that business ended up closing after just two years. Yeah, like right there. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's, it's a self-perpetuating cycle too, right? We learn it from our bosses. We learn it from our experiences, especially for many of us starting out as teenagers mm-hmm. in the usual retail businesses that we do where you're not really allowed to have original thought and to bring her forward original ideas. And we internalize that. And so then we go on to perpetuate it and it goes on to the next generation. We could get onto a whole soapbox about the origins of management coming from the plantation economy of Mm -hmm. slavery, especially in, in the United States and black slavery. And that was the first time you had enterprises of thousands of people and you needed managers and middle managers to be able to tell them what to do. And it's don't get me wrong. I'm not drawing a parallel between typical corporate ways of doing things and the experience of slavery, because of course we're talking grossly different scales. But I I think about sports teams, right? I'm a hockey fan. And we hear in hockey about new rookies to the team having to be Mm -hmm. hazed and having to be treated a certain way because you have to earn your stripes. In Hollywood, right? The Hollywood managers become these jerks because that's how they were treated when they were junior assistants. Doctors and evaluating marathon resident shifts. Like, really? Yeah. It's like we, we grow up in this context and we're brought up in this culture where it really is about command and control. Do it my way because you have to produce. And it, it, I, take the Industrial Revolution. It was about producing widgets. Mm-hmm. And every widget has to come out exactly the same every time. And I'm sorry, but that doesn't work in the knowledge economy. 
And our practices haven't caught up with that, which is where we end up in this situation of, well, I can't train someone to do it like me. I'm not building a widget factory. So I should just do it myself. I could just keep going on that soapbox, but we'll leave that one to the side because it's not just that too. Like the other things that we often see, we talked a little bit about this before, is this idea also that, you know, the entrepreneur, the person that started the business, they're the one with this unusual intersection of skills and experiences that makes the business work. Like I can't tell you the number of times I've had clients and potential clients and past clients tell me that there's no way they could standardize or create an SOP or anything along the lines of putting together a way in which to support their team in delivering because it all rested on them because they were the ones with the experience and the unique skill set. Or even if you have processes and that sort of thing, just this idea of no one has this blend, right? So many of Mm -hmm. us became entrepreneurs because we were good at a lot of things. I I think about the classic example. I know I always go to a web design example, but that's how I started (laughs) way back in the day. And why was I doing web design? Because I was a good designer. I was a good programmer. I could write decent copy. I could be a one-person shop. And there are not as many people out there who can do what I did at the level I did. It's either need to hire a unicorn or I need to clone myself. And since neither of those are options, I'm I'm stuck. And I know we're going to talk more about unicorns later in this season. We so. are. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> it's it's one of my biggest soapboxes. That's the episode Jill's really looking forward to of this season. So we won't <laughs> go down the unicorn rabbit hole too much. But on the flip side of that, there's also this side of, I don't want to hire people who aren't as good at me. But sometimes there's also the flip side, which is, But what happens if I hire people and they're better than me and that's really threatening? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Because then they're going to want more of a piece of the company or then I'm going to have to pay them more than I pay myself, which many of us end up doing anyway, just to get the business growing. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a whole other soapbox. Have I mentioned I've got a lot of soapboxes in my (laughs) closet? I do. Just in case you're wondering. Yeah. But like this idea basically that they're going to poach business. I can't Mm -hmm. tell you the number of times I've had people go, aren't they going to just run off with my ideas? Yeah. Aren't they just going to go and steal all my clients? And as my friend Angela Loria says, it always ends up with us down in a van by the river somewhere, right? That's where our brain goes to the fears. Mm -hmm. But there's also this element of being threatened where it's like, well, this is my business. I'm supposed to be the leader. Therefore, I'm supposed to show up knowing the answers. I'm supposed to be the expert. I'm supposed to be at the forefront, especially in the online marketplace where we're building expert businesses. So what Mm -hmm. does it say about you? If you hire someone into your team who's more of an expert than you are, is it no longer an expert business? Obviously, that's not true. And when I say it that way, you get it, right? Like, it's it, that doesn't make any sense. And yet, this is what we're saying. Like, what if I'm not the expert anymore? What does that say about me and my value mm-hmm. and my worth to the company? Well, and not just that, but what does that say about me to our clients? There's a whole, excuse my language, mindset piece about that. <laughs> The new four-letter word. The new four-letter word, mindset. mindset. But it's this whole concept. It's not just about how does it reflect on me, but it's also how does that reflection of me reflect back to my clients. And again, this leads back down to in a van by the river. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially, like you said, you've built this personality brand. We talked about that in episode one of this season. You know, what happens when it's not just me delivering? What happens when it's someone better than me that I'm bringing in to deliver? Does that devalue what I've done before? And then on top of it all, 
on top of it all. Because <laughs> that's not enough, right? It's okay, I've hired all the people and I've gotten over all of that mindset stuff. <laughs> and I just don't have time. I have barely enough time to be able to do all the calls and check all my email and manage my own stuff. I don't have time to build out a proper training program and what? Or an onboarding plan or even right? just to talk to the new hire. <laughs> right. It's like I've read and I, I've, I've expressed a few times that the, the experts in hiring say you got to give three to six months before someone's really going to be fully onboarded into their position. At least. And I get so much pushback from people because it's like, I need someone like now, like, isn't there a way we can make that shorter? It's like, not really, not if you actually want them to be able to operate at this really high level. Well, and, and I want to just caveat this because this is a conversation I've actually had recently with a couple of our clients. And that's just getting clarity on what we're talking about with regards to onboarding and the completion of onboarding. Going back to season one, talking about the difference between owning a responsibility and delegating a task. For us, when we're talking about onboarding, we're talking about transitioning ownership of the responsibilities fully to the in individual, mm -hmm. right? That means that onboarding cannot be finished, cannot be completed until such time as that person has taken over and owns responsibility for every single responsibility that they were hired to take on. Yeah. Not the tasks, but nope. the actual outcomes. Can they define what tasks should happen? Are they operating at a level beyond SOPs and beyond processes? It's only when you get to that point, as you said, Jill, that we would consider someone fully onboarded. And that just terrifies a lot of people. Because oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I need someone yesterday, six months from now isn't going to help me. And yes, there are ways to get really faster. And there are ways to be able to deal with this question of onboarding and deal with this approach to bringing people on that works. But you have to first accept that it's not about creating a clone of yourself. If that's your goal in onboarding someone or in hiring someone, you're never going to get there. What you have to do instead is take the perspective of my job is to bring someone in who will be able to bring their own ideas, which hopefully will be better than my ideas. And that's what I'm going to give them the latitude to do. That's why it's not so much that I'm training them as much as I'm onboarding them and letting them bring their skills to the table. I, I still end up getting a lot of pushback, even at that point, because there's still all of the things. There's still all of this, there's still all of that. And in the end of it, it's going to sound, I'm not quite sure the word, but you just got to bite the bullet and mm -hmm. make the time. And give yourself the space and be okay with doing that. Yeah. It's something that we hear a lot on the sales side, right? The the classic sales objection of, you know, I don't have time to do this right now. And what do all of the sales trainers say? How do you handle that objection? When's going to be a good time? There's never going to be a good time. There isn't. Right? There's There comes a point at which you have to choose what role you're inhabiting. Are you inhabiting the role of leading the business and you're growing into that role as the leader of the business or are you staying in the doer of the business? Are you staying in the implementer role? Because if that's where you want to stay, then you know what? You're never going to find 
people who will be able to do the things because you will be looking for clones of yourself. But that's what was so interesting to me as I continued my conversation with Joe was to be able to hear what his evolution was like in that regard. In my last corporate job, and this was 15 years ago at this point, I finally got some exposure to some bosses who had made the distinction between being managers and being leaders. And while in that role, I also got to build relationships with hundreds of owners of really successful small to medium-sized businesses. And so for the first time, I started to see what could happen when leaders recruit teams who are fully engaged behind their missions and fully bought into the concept of doing the right thing for the customer always. After six years there, the culture changed in that company due to a huge shift in leadership. The folks who were my champions were all moving on. And my new boss was another manager who wanted to pull us all back into a rigid system. And he made it pretty clear that he didn't like my approach and that it was never going to work between us. And he told me I'd have about 90 days before it was time for me to go. So I hopped back into the freelance market and pretty quickly scaled up into agency mode. But a few years in, I was running into some of the same old issues. I'd assembled a good team, but I wasn't really leading them. So I was still Lucy Ricardo sitting at the wrong end of the candy conveyor. Working with Brienne and Jill, I had to reconnect with those leadership ideals and let go of a lot of the rigid structure that I had put in place because I assumed it's what our clients wanted. And the humbling realization here is that the clients didn't really care how we got the results we did or who did that work. So that even meant a change in my role. We rebooted our business a few years ago when my wife and I rolled all of our work into a single new company. She's the owner. I'm the managing director. We're running with a leaner team than either of our previous businesses. We're compensating our team better than we ever have before, even though total compensation's a smaller percentage of our budget than it ever has been. And our profit is consistently the highest as a percentage that it's ever been. And it gives us the kind of runway that lowers the stakes. So we don't have to tolerate working for a client that doesn't share our values just to hit our number for the quarter. And I no longer necessarily know what our team's working on from minute to minute because my job involves delivering just the parts of the output that are within my own zone of genius and making sure that we've eliminated any roadblocks keeping the team from operating in theirs. We operate within a culture of transparency and feedback that ensures I'm not making decisions in a vacuum and our team can keep coming up with the best solutions for our clients' problems. Yeah, that that just that gives me goosebumps listening to, right? Just the change and the transformation that he underwent to grow, as he said, grow back into being a good leader mm -hmm. for his people and trusting his people and having them buy into the mission, having him buy into the mission and all of these things. And there's so much that I could pull out of that as you pulled out, like the team buying into the, the mission and the values and really being able to leverage that into them doing what's best for the company and for the clients both, right? To find that sweet mm -hmm. spot of uh, maximum value to the clients and maximum value to the business as, as we talk so often about 
I laughed at his reference to the the clip from the old TV show I Love Lucy, right? Where <laughs> where you know it's the conveyor belt and the chocolates. But where my mind went is back to that idea of assembly line businesses, right? We're not operating that kind of business. We're not talking about fast food restaurants or assembly lines because we're talking about professional businesses that require skill and improvisation and problem solving and decision making. And we want differences in our business and in our team. You need differences. You need both neurotypical and neurodivergent people. If I want to get into the technical terminology, right? You want those differences. You want a total spectrum Mm-hmm. of ability and capability and approach and view right? to and make something awesome. Like the way you think it's a, affected by, as you said, you know, neurotypical, you know, versus neurodivergent or neurodiverse. It's also affected by racial background. It's uh, affected by gender identity. It's affected by religious background, socioeconomic status. So, you know, all of these lenses and layers of intersectionality they all come into play and they mean that every person that is on your team is bringing a different perspective and it's enriching the business Mm -hmm. through that, which is ultimately what's going to allow your business to be able to serve people better. Yes, it's about trusting your team. Yes, it's about allowing your team to step into their zones of genius. Yes, it's about you know figuring out how to manage your process and do quality control. But at the end of the day, if your clients are getting better results or they're rating the experience more highly or they're shouting out your team members and saying, that was like amazing. And we've had this, right? Our team members do a call with a client and the client is like, that was incredible. That was an amazing call you'll know that you've got this right because you're not just trying to hire people that can do things the same way you do. You're hiring them because they're better than you. That allows your company to just skyrocket. Because again, going back to season one, we talked about the difference between the hub and spoke model of you being in the center and pushing everything forward as compared to having a team of sled dogs or a team of horses that are all pulling together, you go so much faster Mm -hmm. because your team is working independently. They're pulling together. You're pulling together. It all just works. Yeah. And so when it comes to this belief that training your team requires more effort than just doing it yourself, what's really going on underneath that is a mistaken belief that your team should do things the same way that you've always done them. And that's the myth you need to bust. That's the thing that if you can get past that, if you can get past this belief that your team needs to do everything and give the same output in exactly the same way as you would have done it, if you can get past that, you'll have better profit, you'll have better client results, you'll have enough time in your schedule to actually be able to do the team building and mentoring that you want to do. And you'll have a business that actually truly allows you to be the visionary CEO. 
So go ahead, give that a try and let us know how you make out. You can message us on Facebook or on Instagram. And then as always, we appreciate you being here and listening and sharing in our soapboxes because it's always fun to share in soapboxes. <laughs> From the unceded territory of the Qualcomm First Nations, I'm Jill Giovanazzo, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on the Visionary CEO Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Visionary CEO Podcast, hosted and produced by Brian Dick and Jill Giovanazzo. For more information about anything you've heard on the show, visit us on the web at visionaryceoacademy.com slash podcast. You can keep the conversation going on social media too. Just use the hashtag Visionary CEO Podcast. This has been a Podcast Taxi radio production for the Visionary CEO Academy. Hey there, it's Jill. We just wanted to take a moment to let you know that everything we've been talking about in today's episode is part of what we do with our clients in the Visionary CEO Academy. Our programs and masterminds are some of the most advanced business leadership opportunities out there and are designed specifically to help strategists, coaches, and other online business owners like yourself scale your business to seven figures and beyond quickly, sustainably, and profitably. But most importantly, by keeping your values and your vision front and center. So whenever you're ready, just head on over to visionaryceoacademy.com slash podcast for more information and to get started. Can't wait to see you there.